for those who don't see me three hours a week, uh, my name is John Furman. I am now a professor in the Bible department here at Montreat. But about eight years ago, I was a student here at Montreat. And this morning, I'd like to share with you, in just a few minutes, how that transition came from being a student and also a non-believer to coming back here as a teacher in the Bible department. Yeah, I'm teaching Old Testament this semester, and as we go through it, time after time, as the men of Scripture share what God has been doing in their life, lives were changed. Moses shared what God had been doing in his life with Jethro, and Jethro praised God afterwards. And Jonah shared his testimony with some sailors out on a boat one day. And after that, they worship God. So this morning, as I share my testimony with you, I want to be clear that, that what I did and my decisions are not the focal point. But as we see in Scripture, what God had been doing in the lives of people, that is foremost on your mind. About eight years ago, nine years ago now, I came to Montree and I signed up for an Old Testament course which was very much required and is now. And as I went into that course, I met a man named Dr. Newton. As I, as I started that course, I was very apprehensive about what was going on. But as we got into the course, I found that that one man presented scripture in a way that I knew that you could believe scripture without hanging up your brains and without doing away with your intelligence. And that stuck in my mind and it impressed me so much that even as time went on and as I began to teach Old Testament, I have never forgotten what that man taught, not so much by his words, but by just believing what he taught. And he could do that in an intelligent way. After that time, as, as my freshman year progressed, I was brought up in, in a home which said, you must go to church on Sunday. And that never went away from me. So as I came here and I was off on my own, I still went to church and I started coming here to the Montree Presbyterian Church where I, where I started hearing a man named Calvin Thielman. I was later told in St. Louis, his reputation had spread out that way, that his sermons were unforgettable. And as you Old Testament students of mine know, I've quoted him a number of times from the sermons that I heard as a freshman. That impressed me so much that I started wondering, there must be something to this. As my freshman year progressed even more, I met a girl named Cam Irving, who is later married and is now moved, has been a missionary, and, and she and her husband are living in the Black Mountain area. Well, this little girl, who is about half my size, had a great influence on my life because her life stood about 10 feet tall. 
And there was something different, something very, very different about her life. And I saw it in, in the way she greeted other people, in the way she carried on her relationships with other people. And I was going, there's something there. And I was just intrigued to find out what it was. So I offered her a ride to a Christian coffee house one night. And they, I went down there and they were singing a song. And some of you may be familiar with it. It was on a Monday. I came to know the Lord or something. And then it was on a Tuesday. And you stand up when your day comes. And I noticed that everybody was standing up, and by Wednesday of the week, I started getting nervous, going, Cam is going to understand that I'm not standing up. And Thursday would come along, and sweat would come out on my forehead. And Friday, I was going, I need to do something, and I would go up and get a drink of water. <laughs> and then the song would be over, and I'd come back and sit down. And then they, they must have sung it three times that night. And each time, about Thursday or Friday, there I go off for more water. <laughs> It was rough. Later on that year, I ran into another person. His name was Mark Emblidge. Some of you were recruited by him. He, he came back later to be head of admissions here. Well, Mark and I were close friends. And Mark and I would stay up every Saturday night, it seemed like, till 2 o'clock in the morning, arguing and arguing and arguing. And I'm not sure to this day whether I ever told him that I agreed with him at the end of the night, but I would never tell him. And this went on for the rest of my sophomore year, and I just, I could never tell him that I actually agreed with him by the end of the night, but I just kept up a facade that said, it's very interesting what you're saying, but I have my thoughts. Well, Mark came screaming into my room during my freshman year going, I'm going, to re I'm going to pray to receive Christ at 7.30. And I went, that's kind of dumb. There goes another friend. And I was really upset. But I, what, what I want you to understand is that that friend stood by me through the rest of my freshman year and on into my sophomore year. He never let me down. And that impressed me. One night... It was, it was right before Easter. I heard Calvin preach a sermon on communion and being ready to receive communion. And uh, Dr. John Akers, who was also a professor of Bible at that time here at the school, was heading up the SGA. And we were walking up to the meeting after Calvin's sermon. And I was trying to play intellectual. I said, what is the difference between this denomination's communion service and the Presbyterian communion service? And he looked at me and he goes, are you a Christian? <laughs> and it took me back. It took me by surprise because for the first time someone had looked at me and said, are you a Christian? And it made me question. And I had to come up with the answer of, I don't know. And he explained some things to me, and, and that really didn't satisfy me. But it, it surely made me question. And I went to a, a lady that I think all of us who have been around Montreal for a while will remember, and they'll probably bring some smiles to some faces. I went to a lady named Miss Elizabeth Wilson. And that lady had more love and more answers than anyone I had ever met. And I went over to Maha, where she was living as a dorm counselor, and 
And I went in, and instead of turning to the right to call down the girl that I was waiting for, I turned to the left and went into her apartment. And if anything has ever meant a turning point in my life, I think it was that. And I went in, and she sat down with me and explained, point by point, what it was to be a Christian. That, I believe, is a night I'll never forget. But what I want to share with you this morning is this. It took until the last month of my sophomore year here at Montreal, two years, for me to come to that point. God had used many people in many different ways to bring me to himself. Yeah, the verse that says, we love because God first loved us, is very apparent in this story. He used people, situations, and even this college as a whole to bring me to himself. His love drew me to him. What I want to share is this. To the people, to the students particularly, especially freshmen, I pray that you will not go until that last month of your sophomore year questioning going from person to person, wondering, could I be a Christian? What is it to be a Christian? Montreat is blessed with an abundance of godly men and women, and Calvin particularly is here to answer those questions and will be here even after this service to answer those questions. And I pray that you won't go into your sophomore year doing what I did. But to the Christians, to the believers already, I pray that you would take note of how God used these different people with John Akers being able to say, are you a Christian? With Mark Embush saying, I'm going to stand by you. With Cam Irving going, my life is an example. Yeah. To, to Miss Elizabeth Wilson, who was ready to make a defense of her faith, to tell me why I could believe. I pray that, that you would wonder, what is it that you are here for? What purpose? And that we take advantage of the, of, the, of the times that we have that we can share with our friends, with the people next to us on the hall. That we can use this time here at Tree to really bring forth the fruit that is ours to be here. So I pray that you could see that God it was the center of this whole thing, that it was him in control who brought all this about. And it, and it is, and I always wonder if it is a privilege when people say it is, but it is a privilege for me to be here this morning to share this story with you and to be back here after eight years uh, to, to be able to do this with you this morning. And I thank you. I want to also express my appreciation to John for his Christian testimony and for the good work that he and his good wife Martha do here in our college. We are very grateful to both of them. In a few minutes you'll be able to hear John on the drums. Years ago I used to hear him on the drums all the time. He used to drum right over my office. He kept me awake during my sermon preparation. I'm supposed to read the Bible. And uh, so I'll read the Bible. Luke chapter 12. Verse 13, if you have a Bible, we have been studying through stories that Jesus told. 
We've been talking about the parables and showing how these parables applied to our own daily life are great miracles of teaching. They teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be under his kingly reign. Now here we find an interesting occasion in which Jesus teaches a parable as a result of an interruption. And someone in the crowd, he was teaching very important a lesson on the Holy Spirit. And right in the midst of his teaching on the Holy Spirit, someone blurted out and said this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge to, or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build greater barns, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Who had a fortune of gold. An investor, Jesus told a story of three people who were given sums of money to invest. One took his five units of gold and uh, was able to double them into a profit that meant that he now had ten talents of gold, ten units of gold. One took his two talents of gold and made of it four talents of gold. A talent is a unit of a weight of measure. But the one who had received only one talent because he was not satisfied apparently with what his Lord had given him, took that considerable amount of money, which according to day, today's market would be worth about $500,000, and buried it in the ground and did nothing with it. And the waste that occurred was what his Lord rebuked him for. And what Jesus was teaching us is that we will be held accountable for the knowledge that we have of the Savior to pass that on to other people. For what we do with the money and the wealth that we possess, we will give a, a reckoning for what we do with those great gifts. I felt badly last week that I did a poor job in relating this particular parable and one of our most thoughtful members, a deep Christian, came to me afterwards and, and said, you know, we came into some 
inheritance that amounted almost to the amount of money you talked about. And he said, the Lord really was zeroing in on me and how we are to realize that what we have, we are responsible to use under his guidance. Now the story that Jesus told this morning. First of all, the interruption. Jesus is interrupted right in the middle of an important teaching. He used interruptions in a way that I wish I could. Why, one day he was teaching in a house that was crowded, and while he was teaching, dirt began to fall down, and little flakes of tile and mud, and the people all began to look around, and then they looked up, and then they got dirt in their eye. And there were four guys on top of the roof, tearing the roof up, letting the man down through the roof. Now Jesus could have said, what do you mean breaking up my meeting? But I think Jesus laughed. He thought, boy, that's some kind of faith. Look at those guys. They got on top of the house, tore the roof off, and they let this poor guy down. Very ingenious. Jesus looked at it. And he loved it. He loved it. Boy, I know it wasn't a Presbyterian church. I wish it was. <laughs> I'd like to have one called a hole in the roof Presbyterian church. <laughs> think about how it'd be after the service. Though, go look at that hole. And think, man, isn't that a nice hole? A guy got saved. He got let down through there. He's not going to go to hell. He's saved. He met Jesus. He went away changed. Instead of we got through the thing on time and we really got out and... Uh, but here, Jesus is dealing with souls whose life and death for eternity are at stake. And he cares about them. Little tiny John Wesley. When he went to preach in a place because God had touched his soul and he realized that hell was hell and heaven was heaven and you had to believe in Jesus and be born again to be saved, the rectors would say, you are not to preach anymore in St. Mary's Church. Mr. Wesley said, I appeared today in Nottingham and was told by the vicar that I was never to set foot in that parish again. And you know what his grand reply was? The world is my parish. The world is my parish. And all five feet two inches of him, 118 pounds, that little guy turned England right side up for Jesus Christ because he dared. And don't say he was an ignoramus. He used to wake up every morning reading his Greek New Testament. He went to Oxford but he sought a holy life and he sought a reality of faith, not just a bunk of going through the formality of religion. Religion is either a consuming fever or it's a dull habit, one or the other. And for Wesley, it was a consuming fever, not a dull habit. It was real and he preached it as real. And so when Jesus was interrupted, he used the interruption and he taught. Uh, the forgiveness of sins and that man got to walk out of that house that day uh, carrying his pallet under his arm healed and made well. 
And miracles like that could take place here if we really believe. Well, here Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit. And right in the midst of the time in which he is teaching, a man jumps up and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Well, he knew that there were courts of law. Every Jewish court knew who got what in an inheritance, in a will. And Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a divider over you? There's something more important than your inheritance that I'm talking about. And then he warned him, Beware of greed. Beware of greed. You're inordinately concerned about that. I often think when I look at a congregation of people, how many are really thinking about God and the world to come or Jesus or how much money they can knock off this next week or how long the service is going to be and when they can get to the golf course and when they'll get home and what they got for lunch. And, but here, here, Jesus points his finger to real issues a matter of life and death for eternity. And to point up the fallacy of trusting in goods, he teaches a little story. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. My friend whose inheritance increased last week loves Jesus, and because he does, he reckoned that it came from the Lord. But this man didn't give God a thought. This man here, in this story, uses the personal pronoun I. In fact, the little parable only takes 61 words in our common English version. And six times he uses the word I, the personal pronoun I. And six other times he uses the word my or thine, speaking of himself. And that sort of selfishness forgets, first of all, God as the giver. I remember as a little kid a funny little rhyme that I'm sure some of you have heard. I had a lovely tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests in all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate up the sandwiches while I drank up the tea. Twas also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. <laughs> well, this is about the mentality of this man. He thinks of himself, and he speaks about my barns and my things. And this, of course, is where we always get in trouble. He did not reckon of the goodness of God and the measure of health that he had enjoyed up to this point. He didn't reckon that it was the good hand of God that caused the sun and the rain to fall upon his fields. He did not reckon that it was the goodness of God that caused those things to produce, and so he had a responsibility to God. And it's this business of ownership that always can lead us away and astray from God. This is C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. In chapter 21 of this book, he deals with something that's very much on the minds of young people, the ages that we have here, he deals with sexual temptation. And one of the ways that he deals with it is in the sense of ownership in general. Listen to what 
a senior devil writes to a younger devil. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. I want to always, I want, I want to always encourage the sense of ownership. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which equally, which sounds equally funny in heaven as well as in hell. Interesting that he could say that. And that we must always keep them doing this. In other words, these ownership claims, Screwtape says, are really fictional, but still we urge them to do so. And then he goes on, much of the modern resistance to chastity, that's avoiding sex outside of marriage. Much of the resistance to chastity comes from men and women believing that they own their bodies. And that's one of the reasons they murder a million two hundred thousand babies a year. They never stop to think that that little baby in there is a living creature, a human being, that God Almighty, who said, Thou shalt not kill, will one day be asking someone to give an account of. He says if you can get a person to believe that they own their body, then you have a very good weapon to use to protect them from sexual morality. But notice he goes on and expands this logic even further by giving a definition of the body. That vast and perilous estate pulsating with the energy that made the world in which they find themselves without their consent. You did not get to pick your body and from which you rejected at the pleasure of another. You did not get to pick your death. And that's an interesting comment he makes. But yet we feel we own our body. And he says, if I feel I own my body, then I can do what I want to with my body. Who's going to say anything about it? And then he goes on. We produce this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them. We teach them. And now here is Screwtape saying this. We teach them, here is our goal with human beings. Not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun. I like what some little kid called it, the aggressive pronoun. The possessive pronoun is the pronoun my the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog to my servant to my wife to my father to my master to my country to my God. Every now and then some sophisticated person comes up to me and says, well, my God wouldn't allow anyone to go to hell. Your God is too small. If your God can't deal with the ugly, horrible things of life, that's it. You see, you have your God, not the God of the Bible, not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who meets your criteria, the one that the modern theologians are always writing about and tell you a little bit different story about him every other week. So, here we are to get away from the business of mine. So the rich fool says, what am I going to do with all of these goods that I possess? 
I'm going to tear down my barns and build greater, greater barns, he reasons within himself. And there I will stow all my goods, and I will say to my soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. This past week, Steve McQueen died at 50. We were born the same year, 1930. Someone told me not long ago that he began to get interested in the Christian faith, and I hope that's true. I saw some old film that came on just for a little while the other night when I was looking at the news with a man that I saw out at the Biltmore State a year or so ago who was making a film. He died with a heart attack. It doesn't make any difference who big you are, how big you are, how famous you are. There's one thing for sure. You don't know that you're going to live, but you do know that you're going to die. Every breath you breathe is just a prolonged miracle. I looked at a man in the intensive coronary care unit at Mission Hospital on Friday afternoon who had had heart surgery and I held his hand and could feel his pulse beating very rapidly. And I can remember when I was in that same position with heart surgery and thinking what really counts when it comes down to this and it may all be over in just a few minutes or you may fall asleep where are you going to wake up? Where will you be then? What will it be five minutes after your heart ceases to beat and you're dead? This man forgot God. He forgot his responsibilities to his neighbors. And he forgot that he could not have any hold on how much time he would have left. Years ago, someone gave this book to my wife and me called What Men Live By, by Leo Tolstoy. And in it, there's a wonderful story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? I highly recommend it to you to read. It's a story about a Russian peasant. These Russian writers are tremendous, and Tolstoy writes about a Russian peasant who wants very much to have some good farmland. And he is thinking, oh, if I could only do something to get some rich land to farm instead of this worn out, exhausted land that I've got, I'd give anything. And the implication is that he would even make a deal with the devil. And of course, when you get that desperate, the devil always is around to make a deal with you. And so a stranger appears and tells him how he can go out into the steeps of Russia, into the far distant places where the tribesmen live, and how there is rich virgin land with deep soil that's never been broken, that you can go there and buy it for a penny an acre. And so he sells all his household belongings, everything that he has, and he gets together all the rubles that he can find, and he heads out there. 
and he meets a chieftain. And the chieftain comes on his horse and listens to him. And he says, how much can I buy land here for? And the chief said, a thousand rubles a day. And he said, what do you mean a thousand rubles a day? And the chief took his white fur cap off and threw it down from his horse down on the ground and said, you can start out from this spot and one of our men will go with you. And when you get to a corner, he will dig up the turf and pile it there as a marker. And then as much ground as you can circle in an entire day and get back here at sundown is yours, a thousand rubles a day. And the man said, I'll take it. He didn't sleep all night for thinking about it. The next morning he was there before the first rays of dawn came. And then he thought, I'm strong and I know I could walk at least 35 miles. And then he began to walk and as he looked, he saw well-watered places and he thought, I've got to have this. And then he saw other and he thought, I've got to have that too. And then he saw more and then the day began to wear on and noon came and the afternoon came. And then when the light began to fade, he saw still other places that he wanted. And he thought, I can enclose that too. And then he thought, there's just one more place that I can get. And then he began to run because the sun was about to sink. And just when he got back to the white fur cap running, his heart stopped and he dropped dead right where the white cap was. How much land did he need? Six feet long, three feet wide, six feet deep. You want to be the richest man in the cemetery? Or do you live for Jesus Christ? Something greater. Are you willing to serve him? So Jesus says, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let us pray. Our Father, the lesson that we have considered today is a very serious lesson. And especially in the midst of a culture that's so self-oriented, so selfish, so me-oriented. Help us to know that our life is not our own that only too swiftly it'll be away from us, and that only what we've done for Jesus Christ will last, and that we will one day give an account to the God who made us and to whom we are responsible. And so we pray that the truth which Jesus taught us, that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses, will also teach us how to use what talents and things do come under our supervision, to be guided by you, to bring glory to you, that the words we have sung in this closing hymn may be words that we truly mean and that our lives may be given to thee. For those who have not yet given their life to the Savior, help them to know that the one who made life knows best how to live life and that if they give their lives to him, they shall come upon wonder after wonder after wonder, and every single one of them will be true because of their love for you and the love you put in them for others. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and guide be and abide with us all now 
and forevermore.